it's all going to be. That lasted for a few days, but I was just telling Eugene about an hour ago that it's beginning to wear down. I noticed today that in the sunny spots I was kind of grudgingly carrying my umbrella, anticipating what's next. Anyone else carrying their umbrella around permanently? And I'm wondering, I don't, that might have some deeper inner meaning of, you know, preparing for the worst, but um, there is some sort of oppressiveness sometimes, and it's interesting. I was noticing in interviews today how when people are reporting on inner weather, this, that the mindfulness is deepening. So we're sensing, oh, prefer this, don't prefer that. But then there's this growing recognition of the, the reaction and then how that then creates fresh weather. I read somewhere about a Jewish mom who sends her son a telegram and on and it says, start worrying, details to follow. (laughs) Do you know how it is though that we're primed to have these reactions like our body minds are ready with certain stimuli to go down a certain track? And part of the preciousness of retreat is we begin to see, okay, there's a physical discomfort and what happens? Up comes very quickly a sense of fear, how long is this going to last? Even embarrassment. We can get ashamed about what goes wrong with our bodies. In a similar way, different emotions will arise, or even just sleepiness or heavy thinking, you know, and then added onto that are layers of judgment and a whole idea of who we are and what this means. I was remembering a story I had read some time ago about a Japanese nun, and her name was Ono. She was from the 1500s. And she was renowned far and wide for her wisdom. And people would come to her, and it turned out that her major offering was a mantra. And her mantra was very, very simple. Just reflect on this one. Thank you for everything. I have no complaints whatsoever. That's it. That was her whole life practice. Thank you for everything. I have no complaints whatsoever. I told this to my son a couple of years ago. He's now 13. I guess he was 11. And as a way to kind of encourage him to relate to things (coughs) a bit more positively. (coughs) (coughs) And one day we were on the beltway that goes around Washington. And uh, we were stuck in traffic, and I got into my habitual agitative reactivity. And all of a sudden, he kind of leaned over and said, Mom, thank you for everything. I have no complaints whatsoever. (laughs) Completely stopped me in my tracks. So traffic hasn't been the same. But I invite you to imagine what would it be like to move through your day with that quality of receptivity. It's not denial. In other words, unpleasantness can feel unpleasant and you cannot like things. But in some deep way, there's a sense of okay about what doesn't feel okay. Do you understand? You know, that, that in some way that there's a way to hold what arises and trust that whatever it is, there's a this too can serve awakening. What most of you notice in interviews is that we talk not so much about what weather is coming up, 
but how we're relating to it. And for me, more and more, my whole sense of cultivating our practice is one of relationship, that we're really developing a wise and kind relationship with life. And we might call it with ourself, but it's really with life. We start with the life that's most immediate, what we call our inner life. And what we notice when we begin to look closely about this relationship is that when something's difficult, when there's an unpleasantness, we very quickly, our relationship to life very quickly takes a certain flavor, which is something's wrong. As soon as it's difficult, something's wrong. And then our whole body-mind contrives to, in some way, resist or change or adjust. But we immediately try to do something about it. So one of the most basic teachings of the Buddha is that our suffering arises from this struggle with life, with how it is. I love the way Kafka puts it. He says, you can hold back from the suffering You have free permission to do so, and it is in accordance with your nature. But perhaps this very holding back is the one suffering you could have avoided. So we're learning how to undo our conditioning, in a sense, and stay with not only stay with, cultivate an unconditional kind of friendliness to what's here and now. In Tibet, and in the art of Tibet, and we find this in the temples and the mandalas, you can see right around the center, right at the entrance to sacred space, these animal-headed goddesses. Some of you probably have seen this. And they're fierce, and they're ferocious, and they're lustful, and they're angry, and they're really wild and intense. And they're guarding the entrance to sacred space. And the teaching of these mandalas and in these temples of this artwork is that we need to make our peace. We need to relate to and move through these intense energies in order to arrive in the fullness of who we are, in order to know fully who we are. So tonight I'd like to explore a bit more, kind of in a continuation from last night, how we bring mindfulness, a very radical kind of acceptance, to the intensity that we encounter. And it's a given that at any day some of you will be Um, encountering ferocious energies in some very peaceful, calm, smooth seas, and others numb and sleepy, and that's quite fine. But each of us, inevitably, at some point, encounters these very universal energies of fear and anger. And if we're to learn how to fully open our beings and discover who we are, part of our practice is to really discover how to be wisely with them. Now I'll begin by saying that for myself, one of the early retreats I did at 
IMS, and it was a three-month retreat. I think I was there for the last part or the last six weeks. And I was very enthusiastic about coming into it, and as many of you did, coming to a place that was already quieted down. And it was true. I came in and there was quite a bit of stillness. It was beautiful. So the first couple of days were beautiful, walking through the woods and so on. And then, for whatever reason, my mind got tripped off. And there were days and days of very obsessive thinking, fantasizing and clinging, and just kind of ongoing storms of thought. And what would happen is, as soon as I'd go thinking, thinking, my heart would drop, because I'd realize, oh, I've been off again for so long, and, you know, I'm hopeless as a meditator, and I was just very discouraged and really ashamed. I was ashamed that there was so much thinking going on. And I was kind of fighting with the thoughts and trying to let go and let be and have them be clouds in the sky, but my whole world was in a fog, so there was no world outside those thoughts. Anyway, it got pretty bad, and and I remember one (coughs) evening going to the Dharma talk and feeling completely stuck. And I, I don't remember the teacher, but at one point, this was the line I heard, that the boundary to what we can accept is the boundary to our freedom. The boundary to what we can accept is the boundary to our freedom. What I realized was I was just struggling with how it was. And it's a really difficult kind of thing I have to keep on rediscovering that how it is is just the way it's supposed to be. And we all do. We have some lag time. I think we all know this, that our path is to come into presence with however it is. But we have this habit of doing this chain reactivity of something's wrong that can last hours, weeks, days, months, years. And then finally, by some grace or by some realization of Dharma, we get it that this very body and mind, just as they are, is exactly what we need to wake up. For me, it was to find some kindness in relating to thinking, to learn, and this is what I did at that retreat, when thoughts came up, they were a flag, to recognize, okay, I've been caught in a movie, and also to soften my heart. Right away, just to soften my heart a little bit. The real suffering is not because of the desires, it's not because of the anger, it's not because of the obsessive thinking, it's because of how we relate, how we resist what's happening, how we try to push it away. Carl Jung said that our neurosis is from those parts of our psyche that are not fully seen or felt. So this points to a shift and a maturing in how many of us approach spirituality. And I say that a maturing because in some more orthodox or rigid conceptions of spirituality, we're on this journey and this path towards purity. And we're trying very hard to get more pure, more perfect. And this is really a shift 
from a journey towards purity, being better, to a journey towards wholeness, becoming more real, learning instead of climbing the mountain to achieve some pinnacle of rarefied states, learning to turn around and embrace this world with all its messiness and confusion, with all its diciness, with all its dirtiness and its mystery and its beauty, to embrace it. Now the challenge is, as the Buddha described it, that we have this very fundamental conditioning to feel separate. We have this perception of separate self. And if we think we're separate, we're scanning our world, and whatever feels pleasant is translated as something want to have, it will enhance. Moi, as, as Jack described last night. And when it's unpleasant, it's immediately perceived as a threat, something that in some way can jeopardize our existence. It goes that deep. And so we are immediately wired to tense against what's unpleasant. Now, the plot thickens because not only do we translate unpleasant to something is wrong, but we translate it in a very personal way to I'm wrong, something's wrong with me. It latches on to the self-sense. So as soon as there's unpleasantness, there's also a sense of deficiency. In some way, we become ashamed. In some way, we feel less worthy. And I say these words and really invite you to explore them, not believe them. Um, It's something that I've found in my life that more than any kind of suffering that students and clients and friends bring in, or that I feel in myself, it's the suffering of something's wrong with me, that I'm not okay, not good enough. It's really easy to see it around physical sickness, how quickly there's a sense of personal failure. Anybody that's struggled with with disease of any sort, chronic especially, knows that a huge portion of the suffering is the sense of a diminished, I'm not okay, how did I cause this, or why did it happen to me, or just feeling embarrassed about it, or embarrassed about aging. We're a culture that's embarrassed around dying. We're embarrassed around our nature. Now, the sense of deficient self takes shape as fear, the body of fear. And because it's so painful, we have all sorts of strategies to kind of cover ourselves up. And it's very amplified in this culture. I've noticed a difference between Asian teachers and Western teachers in how much they talk about unworthiness. It's much more Western, the kind of shame I'm talking about. The Dalai Lama, a few years ago at a teacher's meeting, said that he was just astonished at the degree of unworthiness, of self-hatred experienced by Western students. We're in a culture that is very much expressed with this body-mind split. We live in our heads. 
We mistrust nature and try to dominate nature. We don't trust what's wild and uncontrolled. And we're very competitive. Everyone has had to have standards to try to meet in each of our families. We all have that, and we all have that sense of not quite meeting up to standards and carrying around some subtle sense of of failing. And in our world, to fail, to not be good enough, means to not belong. It's a very deep relational issue. Not being good enough is severed belonging. We lose our sense of connectedness. It's always interesting to me at social gatherings, if I talk to people afterwards, like a huge percentage will report how they felt in some way like the outsider. We, we go around feeling like in some way we're the outsider, we're a little more alienated or lonely, and other people are kind of in the thick of things. This is Rita Rudner. She writes, when I was a girl, I had only two friends, and they were imaginary, and they would only play with each other. (laughs) 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 So severed belonging, the feeling of disconnection, is what is what we most fear and what we most will kind of try to amp up ourselves, pretend, act different, whatever we need to do to feel a sense of belonging. Now the deepest place that we were told we were not okay for many of us is around being needy. The very word needy gives people, gets people squeamish, isn't it so? We're in a culture that prides itself on independence and strength and doesn't like vulnerability. So when we feel needy, which every single one of us does, we have a very hard time becoming at peace with that because we've been taught that it's not okay. It can be reinforced by spiritual practice. It can be a misunderstanding, but one that people have of Buddhism that if we're attending to needs, we're just enlarging or reinforcing a sense of self. It can be reinforced by spiritual path, the sense of unworthiness, because there's all these ideas about what is it, what's a good meditator? And how does it, how is it to be a good yogi? How does a good yogi look and act? So we can come to retreat and in some way feel that what we're really feeling deep down, that we want more attention, are struggling with not feeling important, are feeling like we're not, we're falling short in some way in our practice that there's something very unappealing about that. If we're busy struggling to cover or compensate for not feeling worthy, then we're not going to be able to connect with the life of this moment. In any moment that we're trying to change our experience, be better, be different, we're not here fully. So an important part of our training in mindfulness is to recognize the strategies we use to, in some way, fix, change, avoid, be different. And I kind of group them into three categories that are useful for me, and if this is helpful to you, 
helpful. I hope it's helpful to you. One of them is that we try to make ourselves better. We try to fix ourselves or conform ourselves to meet certain standards, our own and the surrounding standards. And another is that we fight. We fight with ourselves or we fight with the world to feel better. And then the third way that we try to make it different is in some way that we withdraw, we take flight, we avoid things. Let me just give you a few examples and then invite you just to look at your own day, both here and then at home, and sense what's in action. The first is that we try to look better, act better, conform. When I um, was in an ashram, I spent 12 years living in an ashram, and the first few years I had some notions that weren't so mature about spiritual life, mostly that enlightenment is something that can happen very quickly if you try very hard. And so I was striving to be pure, a little, little with the flavor of Jack describing last night um, with a week of mindfulness, but I had a more of an idea that it would take about six years. I actually had a number in my mind. <laughs> it's slightly embarrassing, but it's true. So the first couple of years, I really worked hard. And we got up every day at 3.30 in the morning for meditation and yoga and chanting, but I would get up at 2.30 just to get a little extra in to be completely warmed up for the morning gathering. And, you know, if, there were, if I had negative thoughts or find I was on a kind of a weird track in some way, I would just strive harder, get up earlier, do extra meditations. And in some way, in a very pure way, I sensed that there was freedom possible, and I really intuited the possibility, but I had a whole idea about a self, a lower self that I needed to purify and a higher self that I needed to, you know, pull out of a closet somewhere, and I worked real hard. I would periodically seek out respected teachers, very good teachers around the country, and say, you know, how can I deepen my practice? And almost without exception, they said, relax. Just relax. (laughs) And so I I finally began to look inside and sense the fear that was underneath the striving, the fear that I wasn't pure enough or good enough or couldn't get there, as if being enlightened was somewhere else. This is Garrison Keillor. My ancestors were Puritans from England. They arrived here in 1648 in the hope of finding greater restrictions than were permissible under English law at that time. It's interesting to see how much of the Puritan ethic we have taken on. We all strive to some degree, and really our practice is to become aware of it, and then sense, what's that fear, that anxiety underneath? How are we doubting our essence that's making us grip so tightly? So we strive, and then we also conform. We try to avoid disapproval. We do it by becoming quite self-conscious. And you might notice here how sometimes in walking meditation you can all of a sudden catch on that you're kind of mindful, but also very mindful of how others might be looking at you being mindful. Anyone ever notice that? You don't have to raise your hands on that. (laughs) I notice that for me, that I, I might be kind of moving around my room in kind of a klutzy, mindless way, but I step out into the hall and all of a sudden I slow down, become more graceful, and this 
self-consciousness is natural. There's a protocol here. We do have some consensual ideas on what it means to be a good yogi. And we want to look good. I mean, unless we're completely outside of that whole needing to belong and feeling like we're not enough, there's some lingering self-consciousness and it's just valuable to be mindful of it. That's not wrong or bad. Just to notice. I ask myself sometimes, am I dreaming? Like, am I in this self-dream about a person walking? Or is it really, what's really happening? What's it really like? So we conform because we want to be seen in a certain way. And not so much here, but we find in life we have a kind of habitual way of pretending. It's dangerous to expose vulnerability. So we pretend to be okay when we're feeling afraid. We pretend that things are, that things are under control when we feel really crazy. Have you ever heard the story, writes one person, about a driver who put a note under the windshield wiper of a parked car? The note read, I have just smashed into your car. The people who saw the accident are watching me. They think I'm writing down my name and address. (laughs) I'm not. You know how people go into a, a restaurant, public restroom and wash their hands if other people are around, or things like that. We just, it's habitual, but we have this self-consciousness about how we appear. Now the second area <clears throat> I mentioned, that has to do, the first is conforming and trying to make ourselves a certain way. The second is when things are difficult, we try to push away ourself or somebody else. This is judging. I won't say as much about it because I think everyone here knows it pretty well. But what's important about judging mind is to include in mindfulness the whole experience, which includes what's the emotion underneath. One yogi today was describing feeling guilty, and when we started exploring, she told me how it was easier to feel guilt, to blame herself, than to really feel the pain or fear that lived under it. It's very interesting when we look and notice that we're blaming ourselves, or blaming another, that underneath that, there's some real feeling of insufficiency, something wrong. So blaming and judging is the more mild way we do it here, although it's quite painful. In the world, this Wanting to avoid what's difficult leads to out-and-out violence. It is a source of violence. Again, I read you from Rita Rudner, who writes, My grandmother was a very tough woman. She buried three husbands. Two of them were just napping. (laughs) When it's raining, I have to tell myself jokes, so I'm just telling you jokes, too. Okay, so the first area, we conform, we mold ourselves. The second area, we push away parts of ourselves, push away others. The third area, we try to avoid, and this we can see at retreat pretty clearly. We try to avoid by going off into daydreams. We try to avoid by sleeping a lot. How we described this the other night. We try to avoid by eating too much. 
we have all different escape routes, much less here than we do at home. So part of the beauty of practice is we begin to see how we're pulling away from experience. One way we avoid pain is we tell ourselves it's not so bad or it's not such a big deal. We deny things. I remember a couple of years ago, um, one of my friends had been divorced for about six months and she sent me a card and on the front of the card there was a young monk and he was hunched over writing with a quill pen on a, a parchment piece of paper, writing something over and over and over again. And when you opened it, it said, celibacy is not so bad, celibacy is not so bad, celibacy is not so bad, over and over. And he was there for more than a month, but same idea. Now, the thing about these strategies that we use to avoid and push away and judge and so on is that they were set in place when we're very, very young. They're called, it's called a persona. It's all the different ways we present ourselves to the world. And they're an attempt to in some way cover the feeling of deficiency. But as we know, the more we live from our persona, the less we're connected with what's real the less we're able to connect with each other, the less we can trust another being really knows or loves us, because all we've presented to them is the cover for what we're afraid of. So the irony is, by avoiding the deities, by avoiding these goddesses, sidestepping them, we get locked into a deeper kind of suffering. John O'Donohue writes, what have we done with our wildness? What have we done with our aliveness? This is what gets covered when we try to cover a sense of deficiency. So our path here, our practices, are ones of beginning to embrace what we've pushed away. And the Buddha described it as a path with two wings, the wing of understanding and the wing of compassion understanding and mindfulness, compassion. We see what's true and we hold it with care. In each, this awakening of the two wings, we're learning how to relate differently rather than pushing away or covering or denying or avoiding. We're learning to bless, to see and bless what's here. One way that I sometimes imagine it is that inside these animal-headed deities are really vulnerable, shy, wounded animals. Just the way you can really see that when somebody's very angry inside, there's a place of real hurt and powerlessness. And the question is, how do you relate to an energy like that that is vulnerable? that is very, very tender deep down. How do you bring it into the light of day? And what we're taught here, and this each of you knows, is that we're with the breath and we're with what's happening and when something strong arises, fear, hatred, grief, loneliness, the first step of waking up is to recognize, okay, so what's here? What's true? Now that could be with a noting or not. And this is really, you have to explore for yourself on whether the noting works. 
You can name it. But sometimes naming is a way of pushing away, like fear, fear. Do you know what I mean? It, it kind of distances us. So if you name, let the naming be an inquiry. Sense if it's really true, fear, and then check with your body. To really acknowledge what's here, we need to keep checking with our bodies. So the first part is that we, we in some way acknowledge, okay, fear, and then really to acknowledge this is what's here. In one therapeutic practice that I've done, when we encounter a energy, the response is first to say hello. Now in our path, it's in some way to bow. And you can explore saying hello. It sounds very dualistic. In fact, a lot of our practices are skillful means that are establishing a relationship so we can rediscover the truth of who we are. But it's very important to acknowledge an energy when it's arose. We treat our inner life the way our parents treated us. So if we had parents that ignored (coughs) our emotions, or told us that we shouldn't feel that way, then we'll do that to ourselves. I have a client, I'm not seeing any more, but last year, and he had a fear of all attractive women. And he was really embarrassed about this fear, and he was so embarrassed that for months he just said it was ungrounded and stupid and didn't want to even deal with it. And it wasn't until when the fear came up that he could actually say, okay, fear, fear's really here. In other words, not the story that's true, but the fear's here. And say hello, and in some way, bless it, he kind of bowed to it in his mind, that he began to lighten up, began to touch into what was really underneath, where it had come from, not in a story way, but in a feeling way, and begin to honor his own experience. In a deeper way, it is absolutely critical if we're to come to peace with these energies that we learn to bow to them. Many of you know Rumi's poem, The Guest House, and describes how we're a guest house with all these different energies and weather systems coming through. The last line of the poem, be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. It's that quality of appreciation and bowing. To really sense that these waves are waves of our ocean, and each one can teach us, can wake us up. So we recognize what's here. We in some way bow. You know, in India, namaste. I see the divine in you. It's one of the most beautiful parts of the culture. I wish we had it here. We begin to learn to do that to what arises in our own body and heart. That this wave is a wave, is a divine part of our being. Painful, but part of our awakening. Next, we pause. Now this is, I consider it the sacred pause. When we recognize that There's some intensity going on. If we don't stop, really stop, then all our traditional, habitual, reactive ways of trying to get away will jump in before we know it. So it becomes really important, just as the Buddha did, 
It's an archetypal image of the Buddha in all doing his wanderings and his austerities and finally coming before the Bodhi tree and sitting down. He stopped. He stopped all his doings and committed himself to stay still, to be there for whatever came. And the posture, so beautiful when you think of it, this posture of, of having a hand out to receive these energies in the shape of Mara, and one hand on his heart, blessing what's there. Blessing. The heart is a blessing place so that it actually transformed these energies into lotus blossoms. So we learn to stop as the Buddha did, right in that moment that something is intense, when we might normally tighten up, pull away, judge, react, numb, whatever we're going to do. Just pause. Now here's a story about pausing that I think is interesting. In the 1950s, military test pilots were flying at altitudes where no ordinary laws of aerodynamics applied. This is from the right stuff. Some of you might have read that. So what would happen to these pilots is their planes would start tumbling end over end. And they would be playing tapes of the pilots when they were going into their final dive. And this is the one that killed them, because a lot of them died. I've tried A, I've tried B, I've tried C, I've tried D. What do I do next? And at those altitudes, the more they experimented with the controls, the worse fix they were in. Now, the solution became clear after an accident involving Chuck Yeager. And in that accident, he was battered unconscious, so he couldn't keep doing. (laughs) In fact, his plane fell about eight miles or so. And then when it hit denser atmosphere, it was possible to stabilize the plane and he could land safely. But counter to all conditioning or training, the solution was you take your hands off the controls. This is what they write. You sit there. You do absolutely nothing. You sit there and you take your hands off the controls because it's the only choice you have. This is Tom Wolfe. So now, in contrast to Chuck Yeager, we're trying to relax the grip but stay awake (laughs) and conscious as we do so. This is the sacred pause. And of course, it's not easy because we are completely wired to try to make things different. When something wrong arises, when we get that feeling, we contract. And one student was talking to Joseph Goldstein and describing how he just couldn't seem to stay present for certain experiences. And Joseph Joseph said this in response, you know what I sometimes do? I pretend that I'm dying and that there's nothing to be done. Rather than judging it, I take no position in my mind. Just stop resisting and rest in your own awareness. In Washington, D.C., sometimes at workshops we'll do special focus on themes of fear or anger. And one of the meditations we explore is a yes meditation. We'll actually experiment. We'll sit, sit as a group and bring up something, bring to mind something that's really difficult, and imagine what it's like to say no and resist and really exaggerate that some. You really say no to this experience, no to this grief, or no to this fear. 
And what would happen if you kept saying no for weeks and months? And then contrast that to, okay, now yes. Just keep saying yes. Yes to this pain in my knee. Yes to this ache in my heart. Yes to this cold draft or this smell. Or yes to this long Dharma talk. Or yes to whatever it is. Yes meditation. And so we'd explore that. And whether it's saying yes or just bowing, in some way there's a radical softening that occurs. And we find that there's room for whatever's there. Charlotte Joko Beck, in one of her books, has a beautiful description of this, of this kind of resting in what is, completely agreeing. And she describes that what we're inside our body, what we're fearing, and what we're contracting against, when we lie down, it's like lying down on this icy couch. She says, rest and let your form just relax around the shape of this icy couch and let be. And when we do, when we really say yes and rest in what is, we discover the space of awareness that really is who we are. We're no longer the resisting self, we're openness. Some weeks ago, I met a woman who told me that she had just found out several months earlier that her adult daughter had been abused by both her stepfather and by her uncle. And this woman hadn't known it. You know, there she was, the mother, growing with this child growing up and hadn't known it. So she was devastated and she was tormented and not only enraged at these men, but horrified at herself. So this was pretty unbearable because in her daughter all the symptoms were playing out as an adult, including major addiction. So she told me that what she had done, and this was just a week before I met her, she had gone to see a Jesuit priest who's pretty renowned for being an elder and very, very kind. And she told her story to him. And in the middle, as she was telling it, he just took hold of her hand. He's just holding her hand in his. And when she was done, he placed his hand, which was much bigger, over hers. And so she felt this warm kind of covering. And he he said, this is the universal presence of God, of the sacred, of the divine. And this, and then he made a little circle in her palm, right in the palm. She said, this is where your personal life is really stormy right now. And you're going to have to be in there and get blown around and kick around and just feel the winds completely. But what's possible is to do that and remember this. And again, he covered her hand. Remember that you're never leaving divine ground. No matter what's happening, no matter what's going on, no matter how much your mind is saying, this is wrong, this is awful, you've never left. She described how just following this, she still felt these waves of of shame and self-hatred, but she wasn't battered or lost or overwhelmed. There was a sense that she could feel the warmth of his hand, this larger belonging, have access to it, even when the waves were strong. For me, this was a beautiful illustration 
of what our practice teaches us in a cellular way, that we all have waves of intensity. And our practice is to remember this ocean of our being and not push away the waves, to include them but not be identified. And there's kind of two facets when you reflect on it, of being with experience. And one is, is remembering this, wa- this openness. It's kind of like the wide-angle lens, remembering the bigness, remembering sky and space and openness. Wide, wide open. And then there's the telescopic, there's the kind of being able to connect with the actual taste and feel and sense of the waves. And one without the other is not whole. If we get too spacious, we can get distant and disconnected and aloof and not alive. And if we get too caught in the waves and forget our larger belonging, we swallow a lot of water and get rolled around and are miserable. So it's remembering both. The promise of our practice is that as we encounter these deities, the wrathful ones and the shameful ones and the fearful ones, and we can include them in our ocean of experience, we touch a very deep sense of freedom. There's a natural compassion. There's a really deep wakefulness. Now, Rumi describes this in a poem begins, this is how a human being can change. There is a little worm addicted to eating grape leaves. Suddenly he wakes up, call it grace, whatever. Something wakes him. And he's no longer a little worm. He's the entire vineyard and the orchard too, the fruit, the trunks, a growing wisdom and joy that doesn't need to devour. So I mentioned that the Buddha described these two wings. And the one wing is this understanding that we are the ocean, that we can include these waves. The second wing has to do with the quality of tenderness, the blessing that we offer, the care, when we touch these waves, the wing of compassion. It's like remembering when we're in the center of the palm that we're really held in love that we belong. I'll read you a little story called The Best Medicine. This took place in the first two decades of this century, and at this time there were a lot of children that were wasting away in hospitals and dying from unknown causes. And one of the doctors who developed some notoriety, some success in dealing with these children, a Dr. Talbot, was followed on his rounds by all these interns because he seemed to be so successful. And here's a story about Dr. Talbot. Many times we would come across a child for whom everything had failed. For some reason the child was hopelessly wasting away and when this would happen Dr. Talbot would take the child's chart and scrawl some indecipherable prescription. In most of the cases the magic formula took effect and the child began to prosper. My curiosity was aroused, and I wondered if the famous doctor developed some new type of wonder drug. One day after rounds, I returned to the ward and tried to decipher Dr. Talbot's scrawl. 
I had no luck, and so I turned to the head nurse and asked her what the prescription was. Old Anna, she said. Then she pointed to a grandmotherly woman seated in a large rocker with a baby on her lap. The nurse continued, Whenever we have a baby for whom everything we could do has failed, we turn the child over to old Anna. She has more success than all the doctors and nurses in this institution combined. The healing response to a child's fear or pain is the mother's embrace. And whether we think of it as the personal mother or the beloved, that energy of love in this universe, that is what heals. And this is the function of offering a blessing. In some way, a blessing is that healing embrace that reminds us or a part of us that we belong, reminds us of who we really are. The Buddha wrote or said at some point, and this is probably for me, one of the most precious lines from the Buddha, our fear is great, but greater yet is the truth of our connectedness. Our fear, right at the center of the palm, can feel incredibly painful. The sense of unworthiness, that something's wrong, can be excruciating. But there is a bigger container of awareness and of love that can hold that pain. Many of you know this poem. This is Galway Canal. The bud stands for all things, even those things that don't flower. For everything flowers from within of self-blessing, though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness. In a way, I consider metta practice just that. We bless our inner life. We bless each other. And in a sense, it's like holding up a mirror or a reminder that who we really are is this love. And the truth is that we do belong. So it's a beautiful part of our path, this offering of blessing. In some way, bowing to and offering love to the parts of us that are in pain, the parts of us that are frightened, the parts of each other that are vulnerable. We find our sense of connection in many ways. We feel that sense of blessing in many ways. Sometimes we can feel it when we reflect on a relationship with a loved one. And then we get reminded of belonging. Or some of us can feel it, probably everyone, when we go out into these hells and just feel Mother Nature and know that this earth and these skies are big enough for our tears and for our joy. It's just big enough. And we're also learning in a very real way to offer that tenderness directly to our inner life. But sometimes we need help. We need some mirroring. Story I heard, this is another story about a priest. A woman came to him with AIDS and um, she had enormous self-hatred struggling with great self-hatred. And he tried to comfort her, but couldn't seem to. And he saw a picture on her dresser and said, who's that? And the woman said, that's my daughter. And the priest asked her, if she was in pain, what is it that you'd most want her to know? 
And the woman immediately said, well, just how much I love her. And then the priest said, well, you need to understand that God has a picture of you on his dresser. At times, we're so caught in feeling bad or unworthy that it helps to look through the eyes of a loved one. There are Tibetan practices where we invoke a sense of the beloved. Whatever image or form represents love and wisdom, and look through those eyes. Very powerful. Because what's really happening? We have just invoked an image that represents our awakened heart. We reconnect with our awakened heart. It can seem so dualistic, these practices, saying hello and bowing to the vulnerable parts of ourselves, offering prayers and blessings. And yet, all it does is remind us of who we really are. At a retreat at IMS some years ago, a man came in and told me that he was the most self-judgmental person in the whole world. And he went on to explain why, and he might have been, you know, he was pretty harsh. Anything gave rise to him feeling like he was really crummy. Like, and so I asked him when he was judging what it felt like and where he felt it, and he felt this kind of squeeze in his heart. So I said, well, every time that you judge, just try touching the place where you feel that squeeze and just offering some sort of prayer to yourself, best as you can, you know, just see what happens. Well, he was sitting up front, (laughs) so he sat the whole retreat with his hand on his heart. I don't think he ever took it off. But we had several interviews, and I had almost never witnessed such a softening, that his whole way, his body, his face, his energy was so soft. And he said that, you know, it was hard for him to really see his goodness, but he began to be able to feel tender because he could feel just how painful it was. And when he reflected on how many years of his life (coughs) he went around with this clenched fist around his heart telling him what was wrong, it made him very sad for himself. And that was the the door opening to compassion. Gradually he paid more attention to the suffering of judging than he was believing that something was wrong. This is the power of these heart practices, that they open us to this wholeness of who we are. The more that we connect with our hearts, the more room there is for this life. It's the juiciness of the Dharma. Sokni Rinpoche describes it that we awaken to emptiness, but it's emptiness suffused with compassion. That we see clearly it's all just happening and it's all connected. It's all made of love. So the transformation that happens as we practice in this way, with these two wings, as we bring both this clear seeing and this this blessing of care, is that we awaken from the one who's feeling unworthy to the awareness that's holding and caring. This is the shift that the Buddha described that gives us freedom. It's a shift in identity It's a deep understanding of who we are. This is a closing poem. This is Rumi. 
When I see you and how you are, I close my eyes to the other. For your solemn and seal, I become wax throughout my body. I wait to be light. I give up opinions on all matters. I become the reed flute for your breath. You were inside my hand. I kept reaching around for something. I was inside your hand, but I kept asking questions of those who know very little. I must have been incredibly simple or drunk or insane to sneak into my own house and steal money, to climb over the fence and take my own vegetables, but no more. I've gotten free of that ignorant fist that was pinching and twisting my secret self. The universe and the light of the stars come through me. I am the crescent moon put up over the gate to the festival. So we'll take a few moments just to sit quietly. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.